looking for the king of podcasts, you're in the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up, Crazy Train Radio? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jack! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Wow! Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing. Is gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting now that's what I call depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars. Wrinkled Ladies.
For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while Sincere Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. Fuck writes this shit. Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. This is former World Wrestling Federation superstar Duke the Dumpster Drosy, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. And it's time to take out the trash. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, the Croc. Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest was known for taking out the trash in the early to mid-90s, back in the WWF, out of WWE. This man was known as Duke the Dumpster Drossy, and boy... Is it exciting to have him on to tell his story of what life has been like post-career, but also tell a few stories from during his career. First and foremost, Mike Drosy, known as Duke the Dumpster back in the day. How are you? Where are you at? And how's COVID life been for you? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm living in Tennessee now. Um, you know, uh, the easy life, I guess, in some ways. I mean, I work a job. I work for a drug court program here, um, which is essentially it's a local government position. Um, and I work in the court systems, obviously. So we were kind of in and out during COVID, you know, because we're kind of essential. We were we supervise people kind of like probation. So we kind of kind of had to keep on top of them and had to work. But we did a lot of work from home. But, um, you know, COVID was an interesting thing here in Tennessee. I didn't see a whole lot of people get really sick. Um, a few, a few of my friends got really sick from it. Um, I had a few friends that got sick months before they ever announced it, that they got really sick and with the same symptoms. So a lot of people around here think it was around for a while before they even knew it or told us. But, um, you know, it's been an interesting thing, man, because everything that's been going on with it, 
you know, the politics, the election, and all the conspiracy theories and everything like that. I mean, you know, you, you never know what, what is true and what isn't true. I just try to wake up every day, go to work, make my paycheck, pay my bills, and be, an, you know, a good citizen these days. Yes, uh, we know you've had uh, your share of uh, troubles as well. Sure. Uh, but I want to look at the positive side of things there with that. You mentioned you're working for the drug court and such. So how did you go from someone who was going through the system and that process to, hey, we like you, you want a job? Well, and that's exactly what it was like because, uh, you know, as part of my plea deal, I got I got arrested for the, the official charges were delivery of Schedule 2 and Schedule 3 narcotics. Basically what I did is I was getting certain painkillers and suboxone type pills from doctors and I didn't, they, they weren't strong enough for me. That's how bad my addiction was. So I was selling them to friends I had on the street that we, you know, you get this underground group of people that buy and sell from each other. Well, anyway, one of these guys that I knew that I bought a lot of stuff from got busted for something and didn't want to do a little bit of time. So he turned around and started setting everybody up. So I got set up selling him about four or five pills on two occasions and that was enough there's two felonies um so basically lost i was a teacher at the time i lost the teaching career and and all that stuff and at that point you know when they came and arrested me that was it you know people talk about rock bottom but that's when i decided you know i was done um i had to go to rehab because i couldn't quit on my own physically because it had such a hold on me but once i got physically clean i was willing to do whatever it took Anyway, as part of my plea deal in the court, I took this very strict drug court program here in Middle Tennessee, um, the 31st Judicial District, which is Warren County and Van Buren Counties in Tennessee. And uh, man, it's it's super strict. They do not mess around at all. You cannot do anything. You cannot break rules. I mean, they teach you organization and responsibility from the get-go, not just not doing drugs. So. I, I never had a problem with it, though, because I was ready to quit. You know, I was totally done. And um, what I ended up doing, I did so well in the drug program that they uh, decided to ask me to work there when I graduated from the program. So I went right to work for them after I graduated in 2015, and I've been there ever since. Well, two things with that. You bring up an interesting point. First being, you were ready to called quits. How big is it from people you see and now work with, but also the strictness you say in your area in Tennessee? How is that like that, would you say, across the country, or is it a case-by-case where you're located? Uh, it depends on the drug court. We're one of the strictest in Tennessee and probably in the country. We, we and I always tell you, know, I, I'm, I'm the one that interviews people that are in jail now that are trying to get into our program. And uh, I, I do the interview and the assessment process. And one thing I always tell them is this is probably one of the most strict drug courts in, around. And a lot of people, you know, can have difficulty with it. But the reality is if you're truly done with that life and you're ready to change and willing to do the work, it's not difficult at all. You know, you get through a little bit of a house house arrest situation there in the beginning and learn what the rules are and where you have to be and when you have to be there 
And it's really not difficult. And like I said, I was willing to do anything. Um, so it wasn't difficult for me at all. Um, but people have to be ready to quit. They're, you're not going to change them. Now, the great thing about drug court is it adds to that in the beginning, the fear of negative consequences. Because if you mess up, you can go back to jail or even prison. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't worry about that because I had no intention of breaking any rules or doing drugs or anything when I was in the program. And, you know, it just depends on the person. Some, a, a lot of people aren't ready. A lot of people just use the program to get out of jail and they stay clean just long enough to finish the program. And as soon as they're done, they go back to drinking and using drugs and then they end up offending again and going back to jail. So that's the nature of the beast with drug addiction. And, you know, it's funny, well, not funny, but ironic that you say that because I guess it was May, June-ish of this year, spoke to Jake Roberts. And, you know, he's another well-known guy who had his share of issues. And he said the same thing. I could go through the rehabs, the courts, all that stuff. But if, as soon as I get out, I could call my guy and, you know, go right back into the, you know. The term, they use is you, the term they use is you have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. If you yeah. are finally done and you're tired, if it's wore you out, uh, and I always tell the people I work with, it has to really get painful enough for us to finally want to change. And uh, those investigators coming to my house and me having two felonies on my record now that aren't going anywhere, that was painful enough for me. That was it. I was done. You know, my dirty little secret was out there for the world to see, you know, not just the people locally where I live. And, and you know, I taught all these kids how to read and write and do math. And I knew their parents. And But the wrestling fans over the Internet, I mean, everybody knew. And it was the most embarrassing, shameful time of my life. And... Uh, that was what beat me down. It beat me into submission and made me realize I need to change. I've had enough of this. So it has to get painful enough. It's as simple as that. Well, the good thing is that you're on the other side. you got a job with it now and all that fun stuff. And I've noticed, and I'm sure I'm not the only one the past couple of years, you've been very active, not only on the NDC making appearances, but conventions and before COVID hit obviously, but what's the reaction been from the fans when they hear your whole story, when they come up and see you? Fans have been very respectful of what I've been through, and they, they've been very uh, kind and uh, generous and respectful to me coming back kind of into the fold, you know, because with the addiction and everything comes a lot of shame and guilt, and I hid for a long time. It wasn't just from this time. I mean, I developed a nasty drug addiction when I left the World Wrestling Federation in 1996, and uh, I pretty much hid from the world ever since. I was gone for a good 23 years, probably, off of the face of the earth from as far as wrestling was concerned. Um, so... When I got clean this time and I decided to step out and kind of talk about it a little bit, um, the fans welcomed me with open arms. It was very interesting to me. You know, there's been this kind of resurgence of interest in uh, what they call the golden years of wrestling, the 80s and into the 90s, which is when I was there. And people are taking a renewed interest in the guys that put in the hard work during the early to mid 90s, maybe not for a lot of money and, uh, you know, kind of broke their backs to keep this business going and the, and the WWF in, in 
particular. And um, people have been very cool to me. And it's, I'm enjoying interacting with the fans and being back involved to the extent that I am in the wrestling business now. I'm just having fun with it. You know, I'm not trying to be rich and famous or anything like that. I'm just trying to interact with the fans, have fun, do some shows, and get my story out there and try to help maybe other people that are struggling. Uh, that's a big thing for me now. Well, obviously, like you said, you're back into the fold to an extent. Has anybody from the Fed actually reached out to you to say, hey, because obviously a guy you were in the trenches with, Triple H, is a big wig, so they say, nowadays. Has anybody contacted you to say, hey, we know your story. You, you know, you come out on the other side. Would you maybe come down to Orlando or something and try to talk to some of these kids that we got coming up in the system? They haven't as of yet. I would always be welcoming to that. That would be great. I mean, I didn't burn my bridges there or anything like that. I just left because I started to develop issues and, and I, it was just time for me to go because uh, I wasn't handling the situation very well. But I didn't burn the bridges or anything like that. But no, I'd be very open to doing that. I would love to share any experience that I could with the uh, new folks coming into the business that they are developing. Cause I think it's still an important part of this business that needs to be addressed, even though I think for the most part, WWE has uh, really addressed the substance abuse issues with their wellness program very well. Um, you know, it's a lot different than it was when I was there. It was the wild west days, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. we were just kind of left to our own devices and a lot of guys were doing a lot of crazy stuff, even though we were getting drug tested. But apparently now it's, you know, since it's a publicly traded company, they've got a, a much more stringent um, drug testing policy and wellness plan. To my understanding, you don't see as many people falling out with drug uh, or substance abuse issues. Um, now, sometimes people leave the business, you know, and, and it, this still happens. It's a, it's, it's a shock leaving the wrestling business, especially all of a sudden. Um, it's a shock to you because you go from being this well-known person that people see on TV and on pay-per-views and traveling the world and signing autographs to back to real life all of a sudden. And you don't realize the power of the WWE's television once you're off of it you know, out of sight, out of mind. And that can play tricks on people psychologically. And that's where people fall into the drug and alcohol abuse. Um, I had already started using them before I left. And when I left, it just got a lot worse because I realized, you know, I had left and it was final. And um, that can really mess with people. But no, as far as your question, I would love to go talk to people at the, uh, performance center and, and kind of just share my story and, and the pitfalls that I, the things, the, the, the things, the traps I fell into as far as the business goes. Um, but yeah, they haven't reached out to me yet. Well, you mentioned when we're getting started here and you're working on the video issue that as we talk, it's uh, November 7th, a uh, Saturday night and weekly you've been doing something lately on Facebook. Could you describe what you're doing as far as getting together with fans and different people in that particular group? Um, I work with a gentleman named Avi Klein. Avi Klein is uh, this up and coming uh, mastermind as far as podcasting goes, you know. Um, he 
started a podcast called Wrestling With Anything But. That was his original podcast. But now under that banner, he has several podcasts. My podcast is called Road to Recovery. Uh, it's a weekly podcast live on Fridays at 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 5 p.m. Central. And it's on, it streams on my Facebook page. We also have a Facebook group called Duke the Dumpster Road to Recovery. It's on Twitch, WWAB podcast, which is, you know, wrestling with anything. But Avi also has podcasts with the likes of uh, Ray Lloyd, Glacier, Del Wilkes, The uh, Patriot, Bill DeMott, Humorous, uh, Paul Roma, uh, and Don Morocco, to name a few. I think that's all of them. Sometimes I forget some. But he's got all these podcasts going on now uh, on different days of the week with these all these different wrestlers. And it's not just wrestling podcasts. That's the beautiful thing about it. Mine, obviously, is based in recovery and not just substance abuse recovery, but people coming back from difficult situations and finding redemption. That's what my podcast is all about. Don Morocco talks sports. He talks some wrestling. He shares old stories, especially his old Fuji stories are always great. Um, Ray Lloyd Glacier talks a lot about the movie he's making right now and, and also the movie business as well as some wrestling stuff and all the others. They just talk about generally different things plus a little bit of wrestling sprinkled in there for the wrestling fans. So it's really an, an interesting concept. But yeah, mine is Road to Recovery. Uh, it is something I'm passionate about now and uh, we are just trying to help people and interact with the fans in a positive way. Have you had any success with it since you... You, you called it Road to Recovery, or people want to talk to you privately, hey, and share their stories? Uh, people have shared their stories on the podcast in the comments section. They, we've had guests come on and share very poignant stories. I talk to people privately now all the time through Messenger and other ways and other forms uh, that are struggling and do everything I can to kind of show them the way out of that life because uh, it is a very dark and, and scary place to be. But uh, yeah, it's been very successful in that respect. Plus, as a family of podcasts, all of us together, we are coming up pretty soon, I think, on the 2 million views mark between all of us here in the first four months or so. Uh, so we're proud of that. You know, a lot of people are watching us. Um, and we're, we are on Twitch, like I said before, and we're getting ready to open up Patreon and add a lot of extra one-on-one -on -one type content and all kinds of different things. So it is expanding uh, very rapidly and we're very proud of it. I'm certainly proud of my little piece in the road to recovery. That's for sure. As you should be with those type of numbers within the first couple of months of doing so. But I was curious to know, because I, when I was doing some homework and everything, I saw that you went to University of Miami. What did you study and what did you graduate with? You know, it was interesting. I uh, I went to the University of Miami under something called tuition remission. That was means that my mom worked for them back in the day. She worked in the laboratories, actually, in, in the research. Um, so she officially worked for the University of Miami. So because of that, I got free tuition. I just had to get in on my grades, on the merit of my grades. So I barely got in. I wasn't this great student. I was like a 2.5 or out of high school, but I got in. And uh, I just took stuff that interested me because honestly, I had already started professional wrestling. I, I had been through the training while I was still in high school and I was doing shows on the side while I was in college. 
So I took things that interested me. I, I majored in criminal justice and I minored in philosophy at the University of Miami, interestingly enough. But yep. And I graduated in 93. And right after that is when I went to the WWF and uh, walked up to Vince and got a job. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. I, I heard that little birdie uh, or little story talked about. What was that, the Nappy Convention you approached him at? Yeah, it was funny. Right when I graduated from UM, um, I was putting together promotional packages. I was wrestling as the garbage man, Rocco Gibraltar, down in Florida. And I put together all kinds of tape and made a promo tape and what you can see on my Facebook page. It was pretty interesting the way it came together. But uh, I found, basically, I found out Vince McMahon was at the NATP convention, a TV executive convention at the Miami Beach Convention Center right before I was getting ready to drive all over the country. So I decided I'm just gonna take a shot. And um, I had a friend that worked at a local TV station as an executive. So he gave me his credentials and I wore a suit and tie and put his credentials around my neck and went in with a briefcase with my promo package in it. And I walked right up to Vince McMahon and introduced myself and talked to him for a few minutes and handed him my promotional package. And probably about a week later, he had J.J. Dillon call me uh, to set up the tryout. J.J. at that time was in charge of talent relations. So that's kind of how it went down. Uh, I didn't give myself time to think about it and and talk myself out of it i just went and did it and it yeah. worked well you hear both good and bad with vince depending on people's circumstances sometimes they hold a grudge whatever how would you for people who aren't sure of the man how would you describe vince at least with your dealings i'm vince mcmahon damn it let's hear it yeah vince, vince mcmahon is the epitome of a wrestling promoter. He is a very shrewd businessman. Let's put it that way. Um, he will make some promises that don't come through. Uh, but, you know, and I took that very personally. But, you know, in the wrestling business and in entertainment in general, you have to be prepared for letdowns and uh, rejection and, and situations like that and not lose your, lose your mind over it. Um, Vince McMahon would make promises about things that he planned to do with you or other wrestlers. And then circumstances would change and it would change the path or the course of what they had planned. Um, I saw it happen with Bundy too. They had this big comeback plan for Bundy as this monster heel. And then I remember Bundy telling the story, Vince told him it just didn't happen. And uh, that's kind of how it works. You know, Vince has, he goes with something for a minute, but if something turns him off or if the plan changes, then he goes in a different direction. And you as a wrestler, as talent, got to be able to handle that. You got to have your head screwed on your shoulders in the, in the right way. So you don't take it personally because when you take it personally, then you get bitter like I did. And then you end up leaving soon instead of, you know, like Randy Savage used to always say, don't ever take yourself out of the game. Well, you know, a lot of guys have taken themselves out of the game because of personal feelings. And you got to put personal feelings aside to be successful in the professional wrestling business. Well, would he at least listen to you if you had come up with an idea or something? Even if it wasn't used, would he at least hear you out? Oh, yeah. Vince was always willing to listen. Now, towards the end, I probably got a little bit more, I don't know, uh, 
erratic, I think is the word. I started using more drugs. And when I went, I was, when I went to talk to him in the, towards the end, when I would go talk to him, it was more about me complaining. And I think he kind of got tired of that. But, um, you know, in a positive setting, he would sit down with you and listen to all of your ideas. I mean, me and Austin went and sat down with him one day. It was funny because me and Austin were riding together and we would come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And one time Steve just asked me to go into a meeting with him at TV and sit down and we talked to Vince. And we pitched this idea of like a skinhead kind of gimmick where he was the, he was the leader and I was his main henchman. And uh, we were just going to attack other factions and groups in the wrestling federation. And, uh, you know, I think it was just a tad bit before it's time. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, Vince, you could tell he, his eyes got real big and, but he wasn't going to go for it. And, and, you know, I kind of exited the room, but interestingly later, he had a bunch of factions and a skid hand gimmick and all this other stuff. So he did, he remembers ideas and sometimes he uses them later on. So. Well, you bring up Steve and I know you did his podcast and all a year or two ago. Are you surprised? Cause you said you rode with him and everything like that. Are you surprised he got as big as he did? No, not at all. I knew it, man. Matter of fact, I used to tell him every week because the funny thing about wrestling and wrestlers is they can be very uh, insecure people. And you never know what the office is planning for you, especially when you first get there and you're trying to find your way. And But the thing about Steve was everybody knew. He had the respect of everybody because everybody knew how good he was. Um and another person I rode with quite often was Bret Hart. And Bret used to talk about Austin all the time, how he wanted to work with him and he had these great ideas. And I would go and I would tell Austin and he would be like, are you sure? And I'd say like, don't worry. Sooner or later, they're gonna give you a big shot. And uh, he was always nervous about that. But of course it ended up happening because he took the ball and ran with it, man. He really took off and uh, he developed that character when they changed him to Stone Cold. And, um, you know, he made the most of it. It was, it was, he's probably the, I arguably the greatest superstar the wrestling business has ever seen. Uh, so yeah, but everybody knew early on what he was going to be because he had that, he, you know, he, he took negative situations with WCW and all that and used them as motivation to up his game tremendously. And, uh, that's what we saw in the world wrestling federation when he came in. And I'm sure he's not the only guy when you're sitting in a locker room, you go, hey, you know what? That guy's got something special. That guy's got something special. All that fun stuff. But another one that had a similar story like that, who's been celebrated a lot lately, is some guy named The Undertaker. You will rest in peace. Oh, yes. The Undertaker has played the game perfectly. He has worked this wrestling business uh, perfectly. Because if you look at The Undertaker, he never needed a championship belt to be over. He was always over. And he was a gimmick. And gimmicks never last. But Undertaker was smart enough to find ways to reinvent himself over and over and over and stay relevant for all of these years and all these decades um, and he was such a great wrestler for a big guy. He was amazing the way he moves and everything. And, um, 
Yeah. The undertaker knew exactly what he was doing and, um, he didn't need to be the main event on every WrestleMania. He didn't need to be the champion. He understood and he would, he would come and go, you know, he would come and go and reinvent himself and still be just as over each time when he came back. And, uh, that's the perfect way to work because then you have longevity in the wrestling business. And that's something that's hard to come by. Yeah. Cause he was a guy who tells a story now that he's been more breaking kayfabe in a sense uh, that, Hey, the, the people at WCW weren't going to use me, didn't see anything in me. But the biggest thing I hear people say about him, and I know you were one of them on Hannibal TV and other people that talk and have dealt with the guy say he has always been level-headed and he he he, tr he wasn't letting his emotions uh get in his or way at least he never showed it he never showed it that's why that's a big thing in the wrestling business but no he was extremely level-headed and uh yeah he he always had he was always on an even keel people always ask me what was the undertaker like man he was exactly like you see him on tv quiet cool and he was always the coolest dude in the room um you know he was very very much respected by everybody in the business absolutely without a doubt um but yeah and i think to your point before i think he used that wcw experience as motivation as well just like austin did um so in indirectly the wcw had created two of the greatest superstars the business ever saw that were in the world wrestling federation <laughs> yeah that's for sure and you were still in a period of the Wild West, as you said, in the early to mid-90s before the attitude and all that stuff happened. Were you a guy that was big into ribbing? I was not that big into ribbing. I mean, I would pull some ribs. I've always told, I often told the story about <laughs> whenever you find an open lock, like a padlock or something in a building, you take it and you do something with it. And for me, I would... After the shows at the bar, we'd all be sitting around and like, for some reason, a few times, Henry Godwin, the hog farmer, Mark Canterbury, a great guy, by the way, I love him to death. He would uh, come walking up, you know, feeling good, having a few beers in him. And I would just kind of reach back and reach down and click that lock on the back of his shoe. <laughs> and he'd go walking off with a, a lock on his shoe and maybe like, an hour later, he would realize it. He'd come over and say, who the hell did that? But um, it was little harmless ribs like that I would pull. I wouldn't shave, you know, I wouldn't put drugs in, in somebody's drink and shave their head like other people did or, or take a crap in people's food or cut people's clothes up. There was people that were pretty freaking dirty when it came to that. So I didn't do all that, but I had some fun sometimes. Um, no, no, more guys were bigger rivers than I was, though. But it sounds like you went to the school of Kurt Henning with the padlocks you would find in. Yeah, you learn the rules. You learn the rules of ribbing really quick in that place. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you'll get them pulled on you. Uh, so yeah, you learn. Yeah. Well, I've always been curious to know because we know the business isn't ballet. Oh. But yeah, you know everybody gets their bumps and bruises and stuff doing what you do but did you ever deal with guys that would throw live rounds at you where it's like dude do I owe you rent yeah um you know there wasn't a whole lot 
that many Vader was, Vader would get really excited and like just throw bombs at you, man. And you just kind of had to hit him back and calm him down a little bit. You know, he was a cool guy. Um, I always talked about Bundy. Bundy was just, he couldn't control his size. He would drop, you know, there's a match with me and him on, on YouTube where he dropped a knee on my face and almost broke my nose. I was pissed. But, uh, you know, most guys weren't trying out to hurt you, you know, purposely. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes guys would let a, one or two go. I remember I told the story about how the one, two, three kid kicked me. One night he was lighting me up with a bunch of kicks and I kicked him back. And But um, he wasn't purposely trying to hurt me. He was just doing his thing. And I think we were both kind of messed up on pills anyway and got a little overexcited. Um, I mean, hell, I was chopping Isaac Yankum to death. And he told me to stop. He just said, dude, stop. So I was getting a little overexcited in there myself, throwing – I'm not going to call them live rounds, but I was throwing some heavy chops, and I ended up kicking the kid in the face. But, um, you know, nobody maliciously tried to hurt you. That was one thing, man. We all tried to protect each other and take care of each other. No serious injuries. We would definitely not try to seriously injure each other. You know, because you want to be able to provide for your family and not take food off somebody else's table when they're trying to do the same thing. Even if you don't like them personally, you know, professionally, you're not going to go out of your way to hurt them. Yeah, business is business. You know, like you said, you want to you want to make sure that they can work tomorrow night or next week or whatever. And yeah, plus beating on people and you know getting in fights or just hurting people, then you get a bad reputation and they're not going to use you anymore. You're gonna, they're going to send you home. You don't want that. Exactly. Well, you did make a brief comeback with the gimmick battle Royal. Hmm. And I've heard you were maybe not in the greatest of shape with that. Can you uh, tell that story? No, I was in the middle of my first active addiction. I was down in Florida still and I was on drugs real bad. I was doing a lot of pills when I could get them. And when I couldn't, I was going to the methadone clinic just so I didn't get sick. I was doing a lot of cocaine. I was drinking a lot of alcohol. And, uh, for the, the WrestleMania uh, 17 gimmick battle Royal, I called Bruce to get on it because they weren't calling me. And I was down in Florida. Somebody told me about it. I called and they uh, put me on it and I had to get, extra methadone to take with me so I didn't get sick during the weekend because I was so physically addicted to drugs. And if you look at me when I come walking down the, the ramp for the gimmick battle royal, I'm really skinny. I'm really white. I'm just, I'm really not in good shape at all. And, uh, you know, I barely made it through the weekend and got back to Florida, you know, drank a little bit. out. I, matter of fact, I brought a drug dealer with me as my friend. <laughs> I brought a drug dealer with me to WrestleMania. That's how bad I was. So, yeah, it was rough. But it was cool, too, you know, going out in front of 65,000 people, even when you're kind of messed up in the head, was pretty intense. Uh, that was the biggest crowd I've ever worked in front of in the Astrodome. So it was, it was cool in that respect, but I was in no shape to be working or wrestling. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer because your gimmick you got coming up here in the next hour. But – my final two questions for you would be, you brought up interesting point there as far as the excitement from the crowd. How would you consider that in terms of uh, being a drug of sorts, uh, a natural high compared to when you had your addictions? It's a huge drug. I was just talking about this on my podcast last night. 
um, we had uh, Daphne from WCW TNA mm -hmm. as a guest. And, um, we were talking about leaving the business abruptly. Uh, it can mess with your head psychologically because you're so used to traveling the world, signing autographs, walking through those curtains to the crowd, whatever it may be, cheering or booing, whatever the reaction is, and you get used to having this certain amount of control over masses of people when you go out to a ring um, and you're on TV and people know who you are. And that is a drug. And that crowd response and reaction is like a drug. Um, and when you leave the business abruptly, it can mess you up. That's why people fall into addiction with substances so often when they all of a sudden up and leave the business or get fired because at least back then, a lot of people weren't prepared for it. You know, people weren't prepared. You know, a lot of us didn't have 401ks or any kind of retirement programs or, you know, we're, we're independent contractors. And back then we were barely making enough to live, let alone invest in anything. So there was no guarantees for the lower guys. But um, yeah, when you up and leave real quick, man, it can mess with your head bad. And it did for me. And I know a lot of other people that it has messed up too. And some of them, unfortunately, are no longer with us because they couldn't take it. And it's difficult to handle. Well, you bring up the 401ks and all that fun stuff. A big thing, uh, as you mentioned, we've just getting over the election and everything that's been going on in this country. Andrew Yang, the politician, has been talking about looking into the whole independent contractor status. What is your thoughts on that? Because do you think there should be something with the bigger companies, your AEWs, your WWEs, all that fun stuff to, obviously there's the wellness policy, but to help guys and gals post-career for like a savings of some sort. Yeah, if they're going to limit people to not being allowed to work for other companies, when you are an independent contractor and any other line of work, you can go work anywhere you want. But in the professional wrestling industry, since it's entertainment and there are likeness and licensing rights, um, you can't just up and go somewhere else if you leave the WWE. And it is, it is problematic because, you know, you're an independent contractor. You got to pay your own taxes. You can't work anywhere else. Uh, and when you leave, you have a no comp, a no compete for a certain amount of time. Plus, you can't take whatever name you had there uh, and use it anywhere else. Um, so Vince has kind of been walking the tightrope on both sides of the independent contractor uh, rules, probably regulations. He's been playing it to his benefit. Um, but when you're talking about guys in there breaking their backs on a nightly basis, you know there there needs to be, I think. You know, there's never going to be a union in wrestling because you're never going to get a group of people together that are going to stand together up against a Vince McMahon or any other promoter. You know, everybody wants a job and they're stabbing each other in the back to get it. So you'll never have a union. But um, if a politician were to open the books and start looking at this independent contractor status, they may find it problematic and they may find if issues uh, that they may want to change and regulate. But if they do that, then Vince is just going to, you know, adjust and somehow take it out of the boys. You know, he'll get it back. Don't worry. He always does, you know. So that's just kind of the way it is. And either you want to be there or you don't. And that's the thing. They offer a chance to be famous and be a wrestler and be in this business. 
A lot of people jump at the business and they sign their lives away. Um, that's just kind of how it is. Now, last question for you. Your foot, I know you had lost your foot. Was that involved with your issues or what happened there? It was indirectly, indirectly. I, it was an old, it was an old wrestling injury, actually, you know, for a period of time I was as the dumpster, I was wearing high tech Magnum, which are not very supportive boots. They're not wrestling boots. They're like work boots or combat boots. And I twisted my ankles several times before I actually got real wrestling boots. And, um, so later in life, it came back and my foot kind of fell apart. If you've ever seen Marty Jannetty's foot, my, my foot looks a lot like his now. or It looked like a lot like his does now. And I started using drugs again. That's when I started. That's when I relapsed. and Or that, that was when I really started. I relapsed for the first time. I started using drugs when the foot issues came. Um, so I ran around trying to find drugs. It was more important for me to get high than to go hook up with a good surgeon and get my foot fixed right away like I should have and I waited so long that it got worse and when I did finally get it fixed I was still running around when I shouldn't have been trying to find drugs instead of taking care of my foot in the end it got a nasty infection uh, a staph infection in there and just tore it all up and they ended up we I mean I I decided to have it amputated because it sounded like the best option the way things were because I had been in such pain for so long and I was kind of getting, I was really tired of the existence, but <clears throat> yeah. So it kind of, people ask me if I'm diabetic. I'm not. Um, people, <laughs> sometimes people think I was in the military. I'm like, nope, nope. Wasn't in the military. Nothing honorable or heroic like that. It's just running around like a stupid idiot being a drug addict and not following doctor's orders that lost my foot. So it was a very tough lesson to learn in life. But how are you now as far as, cause I know sometimes something like that can be dramatic. Um, I was doing pretty good. Uh, this has been a rough year because back in November of last year, I, I developed an abscess on the end of the stump that got infected and I had to have it surgically removed. And I did. And during the quarantine and stuff, I was laying around, you know, a lot trying to heal. And then at one point it stopped healing and it was just this wound that wouldn't heal right. And it took a long time to figure it out. Uh, until finally, just a month ago, I went to a new surgeon, uh, who went in there and cut more out and cleaned it out and cut more bone off of it. And now it's healed up and I'm getting ready to go here on this Monday in a couple days here Monday to get measured for a new leg finally. But I've been unable to walk for this entire year. I've been rolling around on a knee walker because I can't wear a leg because I had an, a wound that was healing on my leg. So it's been a difficult year. And I'm definitely going to appreciate the ability to walk again. It's, <laughs> but um, other than that, for the most part, man, having a prosthetic leg is, it's, you know, you get used to it. It's just kind of part of the deal. Um, you know, and then, like I said, it was a tough lesson that I learned. So I have to live with it. It is what it is. Yeah, but it's awesome to hear that things are going well. I'm going to put the links for Road to Recovery and everything else we talk about because we got to share that. It's such a positive turnaround for you. I really appreciate that, man. Duke, appreciate the time. Good luck with everything. Hey. 
I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world. But I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So, if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have signaturedhorror.com that's right signaturehorror.com not all football helmets are created equal zenith the industry leader in protective technology is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell headquartered and developed in detroit zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. What does everybody want? Hi, I'm former WWE superstar Al Snow, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. 